Welcome to Get Amplified from the Amplified Group, bringing you stories to help leaders in the tech industry execute at speed through the power of working together. Welcome back. This is the first episode of season four. I'm delighted to say. Vicky, who have we got kicking off our latest round of podcasts? Thanks, Sam. Got a guest that we've had on previously. So I'm delighted that we have got Darren Thayer back. And the reason Darren is back is because not only was he an incredible guest for us last time, thank you, Darren. He sure was. But but also, um, if you remember, at the end of every podcast, we ask our guests to recommend a book. And Darren recommended a book called Switch, which is about driving change when change is hard. And having taken Darren's recommendation and listened to the book, I then downloaded it and read it because I have to say, in the seven years that I've been familiar with The Five Behaviours from Patrick Lencioni, it is the first book I have listened to, read and thought, oh my goodness, this is a framework that we at the Amplified Group can adopt and I can see how it can help the clients that we're working with focusing on change management because let's face it the tech industry is constantly changing and we are very often asked to help with change management and although that we had really focused on the the behaviors part of it having actually a really pragmatic framework to drive change management for me has been missing and this is just a wonderful simple way to um to get your head around change management. So it's great to have Darren back. So thank you, Darren, for, for joining us again. And um, I'm really looking forward to digging into this with you. Very honoured to be kicking off the new season. This is so exciting. Good to see you both again. And uh, I'm looking forward to the chat. Fantastic. Thank you very much. So we've had your potted career history before, Darren. So I'm not going to ask you to run through that again. If any of our um, illustrious listeners are interested they can refer back to the previous co- podcast perhaps you can tell us what's been keeping you busy since you were last here yeah a few things in no particular order I I've been teaching for a while and so I've continued to do that um, which energizes me I teach a class at one of Asia's biggest business schools around digital innovation it's got a bunch of bright young things that are impossibly smart and more mature and rounded than I probably am now, frankly, and they have no right to be this good. And uh, it's Are you teaching them or are they teaching you? I think actually they are teaching me. It's uh, it's really energizing and I, I love doing that. Um, it's giving back, but also I learn for sure as much as I teach them. And so that's been really fulfilling. And I would say as well, I am such a voracious learner around what I do for a living like for me it's a vocation it's not a job and so the idea of just constantly tweaking how we drive change how we help customers to be more innovative I haven't found the secret sauce and I think that's part of what keeps me going is not finding it and tweaking things and trying to figure it out and I think it's always contextual to every scenario and every customer and I continue to love that challenge and will continue to lean into it for as long as I'm around, I suspect. Fantastic. That's all good. I, I used to love doing the training for the the, the younglings at SoftCat. There's, there is something energizing about trying to pass stuff on to the next the next generation. 
when it comes to a topic like digital as well, my students were born digital, you know, and so mm. they already have a strong point of view on the topic, i.e. social media, for example, or they're already a hardcore user. Like they've all come up through their undergraduate degree learning Python, for example, you know, mm. and whether, they're, whether they're studying a tech degree or not. And so it's challenging for me, actually, how good and how ready they are. And it gives me real hope for the future of our industry and the kind of talent that's coming through. I'm, re I'm excited. If, if anything, that's only going to accelerate the innovation that we've seen. I think so. And there's a fearlessness, right? I mean, I talk to these folks that are typically 22 to 25 and they're on their second, their second startup as well, you know, because these days wow. it's not enough to come out with a degree or a master's because that's relatively commonplace, especially in mm. Asia. And so you've got to have something else to your bow. And so they're on their second startup because they know that they probably need to get to their fifth to, hit it big and so they're kind of accelerating through failing fast and it's just yeah. ridiculous how good they are and I love it. And, it's and, fantastic. and at, the, at that age, the beautiful thing is you really totally can afford to fail. Yeah, and some of them are starting their career already thinking they're going to have this portfolio career, which is mind-blowing to me that they wouldn't mm. sort of sit down in a you know one-track job. I, I love it because I've bounced yeah. around over is and thrived because of it in terms of countries and industries etc i just i'm fascinated to see what life is like for these folks and i have young children even more fascinated to see what it will be like for them yeah absolutely i wonder if that's different where you are than in uk you know I think the west is. as it were um darren talked about fear i can't say it fearlessness <laughs> fear Thank you. Um, and I'm working with um, some early career uh, people, um, predominantly at Cisco, actually. And they are fierce. Fearless. <laughs> <laughs> They're fierce and fearless. Just having a go, I think, which is, which is really, really quite impressive. And in fact... Um, one of the people, particularly Rhiannon, that we had on the podcast yeah, she was brilliant. with Alistair yeah. Wellman way back. Um, I'm actually, I've just done a podcast for her and I've asked her in return to come and do one for us. But just, she, I constantly learn when I have a conversation with her. It's, it, it, we were talking about reverse mentoring, but the portfolio side of things so in terms of attitude to career it's definitely there but not that not startups it's mm. and maybe it's because cisco is providing that great grounding and you get all of those different experiences in the rotations that they have to start with i don't know whether that's it but so maybe i'm just a little bit blinkered in my my approach there I feel like I'm going off. We're going off topic just a little bit. But well, we are, we are, but it's it, it is really interesting because yeah. actually, this stuff is this stuff is important economically and probably socially as well. You know, it is is the climate in the UK educationally, socially, economically, financially one in which people feel that is it is appropriate for them to start businesses. Yeah, no, you're right. 
But there is something that I just want to come back on that. Darren, you said the most exciting word that I think I've heard relating to tech, which is that you see this as a vocation. When I came up through school, we were really taught about you're going to be a doctor or a teacher, but you're going to have a vocational profession. I have never thought of the tech industry as being vocational, but actually that's where we need to get it to. Yeah, you know what, to be honest... I don't even think I'm in the tech industry. Maybe I need to tell myself that. I just think I'm changing behaviors and the way we work and trying to drive innovation. And it just happens that I'm paid for by a tech company or I do it with tech companies. I'm just fascinated by humans and the humans we serve, the humans that use the apps and the devices or whatever it is that you're trying to help them with and how we can build better products, how we can move faster I think we're really curious creatures and we're just tapping the beginning of that. So do you think that you would have done something similar pre-tech, as it were? You know, not clearly there would be a difference, but if, you, if you'd if you been at the peak of your career in, say, 1862, <laughs> you know, would, would you have been working with steam engines or something, do you think? Or is your driving of innovation innate to you or are you a product of the tech era or both well i guess one thing that's relevant to the era you just mentioned is i'm absolutely useless with my hands i can't even wire a plug so i think you i would have around the uh, steam engine time i would have been the annoying person standing from the back saying do that here's what the drawing should say if we've got a drawing um i think of it that uh I just am really curious as a person and have always kind of wondered how we can improve things constantly and looking for kind of more efficient ways of doing things. And I'm fascinated by what makes humans do what they do. And so here's a bigger statement for you, probably than the sort of steam engine era comparison. I said recently, and I genuinely stand by this, I would not want to be a professional footballer or an actor or any of those kind of big professions that people typically say I trade for that. Yeah. I wouldn't swap what I do for that. I definitely wouldn't. I mean, it sounds alluring. I'd love the money that comes with it and the lifestyle for about five minutes, but I love this and uh, yeah. this is much better. Ah. Yeah, that's really interesting because I always wanted to be a, a rock star as Vicky probably knows. Um, and, I, you know, I do I do look back and I think, you know, what what if I had ended up going down that route and I, had, I hadn't ended up doing, uh, you know, the 20 years of, of wonderfulness that I did at Softcat? You know, where, where would I be? Would I be in the same position, you know, financially, emotionally, happy in terms of happiness? I, who knows? Or would I just have a monstrous drug habit? <laughs> probably not you could be like the brian may of rock right he's a very intelligent chap yeah uh, no, absolutely yeah, yeah yeah so saving badgers yes as, a, as opposed to kind of looking like one <laughs> i love that for our for our listeners what's left of my hair and my some my fairly large beard is very much badger <laughs> <laughs> anyway we've gone way off topic 
Vicky, you probably have to edit half of that out, me which one, but <laughs> no, no, you know, I, you know, you know, I like a chat. So let's yeah. get back to this this switch book then. Um, yeah. For clarity, this is not the handheld Nintendo uh, computer game console. <laughs> Perhaps you could just give us a very quick summary of it and tell us why you recommended it last time. Sure. I mean, for the longest time, maybe more than a decade, I've been frustrated with, uh, I'm mostly focused on transformations. I've never been BAU. And we know the stats around 70% fail, etc. Lots and lots of them fail. And when I look at it, it's rarely the technology or product that fails. It's typically something on the people side that has led to that failure. And I'm not blaming anybody, but humans that typically drive these initiatives. And I think we've put way too much focus on the task at hand. For example, getting good at agile, what are the steps to get good at agile, or how can we build better products? We start picking apart the design thinking process. And so I think we've always obsessed on that side of solving these change problems. And for me, actually, I think it's much more closer to home around the people themselves. And I always sort of thought of it as we've got this mental dilemma we've got to solve with each of the people in the change initiative. And then I read the book and I didn't have much more science than that to it, truthfully. And I certainly didn't have the solutions. And then I read the book and it was like, wow, this is exactly what I'm talking about. And I won't take credit as though I'm some sort of visionary that knew this all, but it suddenly made sense to me. And I thought, well, this is exactly what I'm talking about. And for the sake of the listeners, I'll kind of spend a few minutes just explaining what I mean, or this sounds like mumbo jumbo. There's this concepts in the book of the emotional self and the logical self. And we all have that. And sort of, I think that's fairly self-explanatory. The format of the book is a set of short stories, which I love as a style. You know, I love kind of pre-economics and those kind of shorter story books and the, the kind that can turn quite a complicated subject, potentially even a fluffy subject, into something very real with the stories. And so I love that. And it just made so much sense to me that each person would have a degree of emotional resistance slash baggage that they bring to a task. You know, the task could be rolling out agile or a product or improving a process, et cetera. It sort of doesn't matter. And there'll be a whole bunch of things that will help you or sometimes hinder you around that. And then there's a logic side to it. Um, And I don't mean logic as in how do I get good at agile? I mean, how do I understand the objectives? How do I know what good looks like? How do I know what I'm meant to be doing next? How do I know why we're even doing this in the first place? And when I read this book, I thought, wow, we don't spend enough time zooming in on these. And if you buy what I'm saying, you'd scope entire pieces of work to talk to this. And if I was trying to help Vicky get good at something and I buy into this, yes, there's the task I need to help Vicky with, learning agile or whatever the task is. But then there's how do I make sure that emotionally I know where she's at with this and then I help her through those steps. And there's the book has wonderful suggestions around this, you know, kind of small, tiny interventions. Happy to talk to that more. And then there's the logical piece around 
how do I let Vicky know why we're even doing this and what's in it for her and that we appreciate this is going to be really tough and we're going to work through it together. Sounds so obvious, but I think we've been missing that in change programs for the longest time. We've kind of skirted around it where we've talked about personality types and we've talked about different ways of working. I think the book gets really deeply personal. And these days, whenever I start a change program, for me, first of all, I'd say this is one of the top three or four books I've ever read in this space that's really stuck with me and I've used it for a while. Um, Jeffrey Moore kind of zone to win is one of them. We've talked about it before. We've had Jeffrey on the the podcast. Um, And so I use this book and I say it's mandatory reading for everybody before we even start scoping, because if you buy into this, it will change the way you scope the initiatives and it will change what you do and how you do it. And there'll be some effort in there around hearts and minds, let's call it that you probably wouldn't have had in a typical scope otherwise. And so I'll pause there for kind of any follow-on, but it's been really game-changing for me. And it's not a new book, uh, but really, really resonate with me. Yeah. Do you think that she talked about the emotional and the the logical selves? Selfies? (laughs) Um, (laughs) Are people 50-50 or do they vary? You know, are some people more you know, 70% emotional and 30% logical or the other way around. I would think I'm probably 80% logical and 20% emotional. Maybe I'm wrong about that, but what's your experience? I'm, I'm going to say it's contextual to the change you're encountering. Um, for example, I'm going to take a leap, and I don't know this, that Vicky's not partial to jumping out of planes. That's my crazy guess. And so if that was the task ahead of Vicky, that's the change task, I'm going to guess, and this I could be wrong, maybe she's ex-paramilitary, that uh, we're going to face a lot of emotional challenges to get her ready for that, probably more than logical, because I think the logic isn't too hard. You sort of need to do it because you either need to tick a box or get to a place or get out of a plane that's not going to fly etc the logic isn't so hard on that one it's it's getting past it emotionally but if I said to Vicky I think we need to roll out this new tech system I know that Vicky's a person that leans in and has done this kind of thing a lot and loves a change and loves being kind of confronted with um, things at the the edge of her comfort zone and so I think that's not going to be such an emotional challenge for her and so I think it is very contextual but Vicky, I'd love to know what you think. That's really interesting. Or we could just push Vicky out of the plane. Yeah. <laughs> You'd be happy to do that, wouldn't you? I know quite a few people that would probably be very happy to push me out of the plane. <laughs> um, but I think your question is is really fascinating, Sam. But in terms of just coming back to the book and the concept there, the concept actually is that the emotional side of it is bigger. Yes. Um, so perhaps we can just touch on that. For, so the, the very, very simple way to, to picture the book um, and the framework itself is if you imagine an elephant on a path with a rider 
a person sat on top with some reins trying to steer that elephant down that path. The, the person on that elephant can pull on those reins and has some strength potentially for a few minutes, but at the end of the day, the elephant is stronger and the elephant is always going to win. And so the idea behind the book is that you have to give the rider, it is direct the rider, so provide the rider with the absolute clarity of the direction that you're going in and then motivate the elephant to go in that direction and then make that direction or the path that you're on to get there as easy as possible. So when I, when I show this in a workshop, that elephant is on a path and I suddenly move the path so that it's going downhill. So you remove all barriers and you just make it as easy as possible to do. And that's the concept behind it. It might be useful to just talk about some examples in the book of how you can practically tap into the emotional self, because, you know, I know there'll be some people that will think this all sounds very fluffy and theoretical. But when I read the book, what I loved was actually I'm either doing some of those things already or I could so easily adopt some of those. So examples that I have implemented repeatedly, the first one is and I didn't do enough of this, was create this sense of progress. Like we're already part way on the journey, maybe before we've even started. Um, And so the example of that would be if you're moving from one piece of accounting software to another, well, actually, you know what? You're, You're familiar with accounting software. You're familiar with these four things that exist in the new place. So you're actually familiar with more of the destination than you've realized what we just need to get used to is a new UI and a cloud-based solution, et cetera. And so it's not as big a change as you expected. And I've used that a lot lately, and it's really been quite impactful for getting people to go, oh, yeah, maybe I can do this, or it's not as big as I yeah. first thought. Yeah. Yeah, Another one that I love is we've been talking about pilots and sprints in the industry for the longest time. I've come up with this concept that I've stolen from the book of, I call it a micro-pilot's. And so gone are the days of like a three-month pilot, we might used to say, and sometimes you say a two- or a four-week sprint. For me now, I say, can we do the new thing for two days, just two days, and try the new process for two days or try the new tool for two days, try um, estimating an agile for two days, whatever the sort of thing is you're doing. And for sure, there'll be things that don't work around it, I've had a hundred percent success rate with people coming back and going, actually, it's not that hard. This is doable, right? Like it's, uh, it's not the black art that I thought it was going to be. This is very possible. And then let's do another two day, uh, micro pilot where we do a bit more or we do something a little bit more complex. And I've done as many as five micro pilots before we said, right, let's leap in. What they don't realize is that some of those micro pilots is, basically a shortened down version of what we're going to do and they've got so much confidence at the end of it and I've reminded them of the progress all the way along and the other thing I would say that I think people forget is the acknowledgement of the progress and really celebrating it along the way Um, a really good example I always remember doing a cloud program with GE 
and then baking into the Gantt charts, right, we're going to have a migration party here. Like literally a party was on the Gantt charts. They like, we're going to celebrate in this moment. And this is a small migration, so it's a small party. This is a big one, so it's a big party. I can't tell you the impact that that had for people mm. to know it there and have it baked in, planned for already. Such simple, practical things that I think are really game-changing. So, you know, what, what you just talked about there is really fascinating because you've gone into the motivating the elephant bit, which actually, for me, when I, when I look at the framework, so we've got direct the rider, so let's, let's find the bright spots, which we do in tech anyway. We do pilots. We go, okay, we've done a pilot. We can see all these great things working. I think we naturally do that. So we find the bright spots. Yeah. And then from those bright spots, scripting the critical moves. Um, I want to come back to this. But scripting those critical moves and pointing to the destination. Those all seem really logical. Well, they are. They're, they are the logical piece of this framework. It's really simple to do those bits. And then the shaping the path, let's remove as many barriers as we can and build habits and then rally the herd. Those three, those pieces feel really simple. But this piece in the middle about motivating the elephant, what you've just talked about there and in the book, it's referred to as shrinking the change. That's one of the hardest things to do. But I, and my really super simple analogy to that when I'm now teaching about this is I'm constantly on a diet. But when I'm on a diet, if I get on the scales and I know I've lost some weight, that feeds my elephant to go and carry on the next day. So I'm constantly seeing that benefit from what I'm doing. Yeah, I, I love that. So I um, it simplified the change so much. I even did something uh, with some students I was working with to convince them that they could make this possible. I, I asked the group of them, how many of you can do pull-ups? And not one of them said yes. I think some of them are lying, frankly. And so we we studied like the process of getting good at pull-ups. And they were all like, surely you just put your hands on and pull up. And I, I knew from a, advanced trying this before that there's actually a bit of technique to it. So then we did about a week of strengthening our grips. Nobody was allowed to do a pull-up. They had to strengthen their grips using kind of the, the grippy sort of strengthen things. Yeah. Um, and then they still weren't allowed to do a pull-up. Then what they had to do was they had to hang, just did dead hang, not, not pull in any way. And they had to do that for a week, you know, every time they visited the bar. And then they had to kind of do this little, they call it a scapular movement in your shoulders where you kind of move your shoulders up, which nobody realizes, but that's the first movement in a pull-up. Then they had to do that for a week every time they tried. And then we said, finally, you're not allowed to do a pull-up, but you can step on a step and lower yourself down. And when you can do that as slow as it takes for 30 seconds for you to get to your full out arm extension, only then are you ready to try a pull-up. What I loved about this, and this kind of spans both the logical side and the emotional side. Because you're putting the critical moves in there, aren't you? Not one of them believed they could do a pull-up at the beginning of it. And it was turning the ambiguous into something tangible. Yeah. But the progress, to your point, like the tiny progress along the way, being able to hang one day for 10 seconds and then the next day for 12. And it really was like the gap, the improvement was that small but it was constant improvement. And then by the end of it, in a very short space of time, every one of them could do a set of pull-ups. Interesting. It's a cool story. 
maybe it's because we've been talking about elephants, but it, it that <laughs> kind of reminds me of the old adage, you know, the, how, how do you eat an elephant? With some, something yes. like bite, bite by bite, or one bit bite by bit, or one yeah, bite yeah. at a time. That's it. Time they say Yeah, and you know, you, your pull-up analogy makes me want to try and do a pull-up now. Yes. Step by step is a really good example of eating the elephant bite by bite, and I, I guess it's the same with big, big change. You know, anything big, anything dramatic. If you look at it in in its entirety, it looks enormous. But if you break it down into its constituent steps, it's not it's not quite so daunting. And I think um, there are many tools these days to give us that positive reinforcement, whether mm. it's a buddy, uh, a sports watch mm. if you're in fitness, yeah. um, kind of heart rate. Um, you know, there's just a whole bunch of things that can give you kind of reinforcement thinking about what they are and having buddies to help you with that. And so what I did with the folks trying to do the pull-ups is I said, you need to tell three other people that you're on this challenge, three people that are going to really support you. And then at the end of it, we regrouped and said, what was the biggest thing for you? And they said it was telling the other people because it then sort of made it real and it forced them to do it. And there was this sense of pride in being able to do it. And on the days when they hadn't done so well, that sort of upset them a little bit, but made them try harder the next day because they wanted to go back with positive feedback. And so I think there's some really easily repeatable things here that we can relate to big change programs. Yeah, and what you've just talked about there, I really like, it's very clever how you've done that, but that's the finding the feeling piece. And I think finding the feeling is probably of everything in these nine different steps in the switch um change framework is is the hardest bit when i'm working with organizations it's the hardest thing to find and in the in the book the purchasing department trying to get an organization to look at the processes that they had around purchasing and i don't know if you remember the story but it was about gloves and they had um plastic gloves i think it was 17 different types of gloves um ranging but sorry no it was it was gloves was there 400 different types of it was a ridiculous number and these gloves um cost from i think three dollars through to seventeen dollars but they all did the same job and they they called it the shrine of gloves and they had them all on the table in the boardroom and they brought the board in to look at these gloves and this 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 heap of gloves did a tour around all their different offices and they got quite famous because People couldn't believe that actually there could be such a range and it had such an impact, but people needed to experience that feeling. Yeah, it's amazing how a skew in a computer system doesn't make it real, but see it there and it's tangible and you realise how ridiculous it is. You've got to do something about it. It's quite emotive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. Now, um, I'm going to... I want to come into where where else you've seen this working, but one of the things that was a real aha moment for me as as I um, became familiar with the book was, so in terms of directing the rider, we've got find the bright spots. So find where things are working in the direction of change that we want. But the next one about scripting the critical moves, and this really was an aha because 
Our um, speed check measures four different things. It measures purpose, trust, clarity, and simplicity. And actually, the clarity one, we have absolutely seen organisations paralysed because of their lack of clarity of what's expected of them. And that's where the script in the critical moves comes in, because one of the things that I really learned from the book was people, it looks like people are resisting change, but actually it's because they don't know what is expected of them and what they need to do. And scripting those critical moves is such a a critical piece of, of the success of this. I find this fascinating, and it's another topic that I harp on about constantly, but I think corporate comms is particularly poor these days, generally. And I find that maybe at the CEO level, it's okay if they've got some support and they understand how to deliver the message. But then after that, how it gets filtered down to the workforce, to the individual person, to what's in it for me why is the company doing this we have this big ambiguous goal to become digital or save money or be faster why are we translating it to this set of topics these tasks and we've never done this thing before whether it's get good at agile or roll out cloud how do we do it there's always that bit that's missing for me in in the comms and i think it's assumptions made that people get it and I find most of the time they don't get it but they're very intelligent it's not that they can't it's just that people haven't bridged that gap around comms and they haven't taken the time to bridge the gap and I think truthfully maybe the leaders don't have the detail they don't know it but my view is this is a moment to be humble and say actually we don't have the answers let's figure it out together me and the folks at a lower level let's get around a table and figure out what's our best guess at this How can we bring in an expert? How can we learn from something we've done before? But together, let's figure it out. I think that's really powerful when you do that and you crowdsource with that group of people that actually need to do it. So they are involved in the decision. You're getting closer to them. They're a little bit emotionally on the hook for the tasks as well because they've come up with it. You suddenly find those people, if you bring them along the journey, become some of the best salespeople and advocates for the new way of working. But today, I think this is a huge gap. All too often when I go and look, and I do this less than you, but I go and look at transformations that have failed, a lot of the time it sits here where people just say, I didn't understand what I was doing or why I was doing it. I thought I was rolling out agile and actually probably wasn't agile we needed in the first place. It was something else. Um, And so I think there's just massive gaps around this, which are pretty simple but you've got to care about it and appreciate the gap and lean into it yes yeah and and just coming to that that human element of it when we talk about clarity very often what we're looking for with the team we're working with is we we're looking for someone to be a clarity seeker okay so Mm. we think we've agreed what we've agreed when we've come out of the meeting but actually do we really know have we really captured with the steps of what we need to go and do because very often people are so so much in a rush to get out of their meetings. <laughs> they yeah. haven't done that. And yeah. we've actually got a workshop that we're doing with a, a team at the end of this week. And we're going to be doing just that for the reasons that you've just described, Darren, because they are going to be scripting their own critical moves. And therefore, they are then brought into it. 
I love an experiment and I love a micro pilot. And I think people look at experiments as this fluffy thing that people do in innovation labs. But I often think if you haven't done something before, a great way to figure out that gap between your knowledge and your, your theory and the reality is either to experiment or sort of pilot around it as much as you can. And then that will often inform the detail that will then let you map it out. Um, I think we've got to stop looking at these things as fluffy things. And I remember people always talking about soft skills as being fluffy, et cetera. I think all of these skills we're talking about are the hardest parts of change, actually. That I hate the fact they're called soft skills because they're super hard in terms of getting them right. They're super critical. And whenever I've looked at those stats, around 70% of transformations have failed. I find that of that group, as much as 80% of that is related to things we're talking about here. And so don't ever think of them as soft, fluffy things or nice to have, because I think that the areas we're talking about now materially impact whether you're going to be successful or not with the change. Probably almost more than anything else. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, you can't tell me as, I was going to say mankind, but I'll be gender-specific, people, uh, or gender-neutral, as I say, We've sent rockets to the moon. You can't tell me we can't get good at Agile or roll out an app or a cloud system. Like it's not the task that's the issue here. I mean, sure there'll be complexity. It's how do we harness this incredible capability that we have around the world that can enable us to move faster, learn quicker, and avoid the flaws and just work better together. And I think it's all around these topics we're talking about now. So maybe just to sort of crystallise this for our listeners, if one of you, Darren, Vicky, either of you, um, could give us an example of following this framework in in actuality on the ground, that would be really helpful. Sure. There's a a firm that I know uses this framework really to drive all change in their organisation, and it's a well-known brand and a firm that I think is just fantastic in the digital space. And that's that's Atlassian out of Australia, but, you know, global brand. And, you know, they're one of those sort of big technology firms that's constantly asking themselves, how can we be better at change? How can we move faster? How can we retain top talent? How can we collaborate better? And in the quest to do that, they turned to switch and you know now when people join the firm they get a copy of this and it's kind of used with their customers as well when they're doing customer programs and you know the feedback from the teams there has been first of all we've realized that even the biggest change happens at a personal individual level for each person and we need each person to have an opportunity to explore the emotional and the logical side of it give them a voice to talk to where they can bring something or even potentially hinder a program unintentionally and design our programs with this in mind, whether it's kind of micro nudges or getting the logic right. One of the things that they found was that they did some pretty good inspiring comms around change. They could rally the troops and get them excited. They could uh, talk about all the big things that would happen at the end of it but there was this gap missing that we just talked to a moment ago of what on earth do I do now? Like, I actually don't know what this new fandangled cloud thing is that I'm meant to be rolling out. What do I do tomorrow? And so there was that delta there that they had to make real, especially at the scale they're growing at for people coming into the firm. 
how can they know how to grab the baton and do something with it if we haven't communicated it better down to that level? Um, and so that's a firm that I know has really embraced it and is obviously well known for kind of culture and moving fast. And, you know, I, I hope to see more firms embrace it. It's my go-to framework. Um, I really recommend every firm looks at it. If you have change resistance or traditionally have struggled with change, I think this is well worth a read or a listen. Yeah. Thank you. That's really helpful. Vicky, have you, yeah. you guys have been using it in your yeah, work. Have you got any examples or any experiences? We have. Um, we're, I have to admit, we're still in the early stages of, of using it. We've been using it probably for about six months now, maybe. Um what what my experience of it is is that just how quickly the organizations that we've introduced it to have grasped it and how sticky it is and how it suddenly becomes a language that they start using and i think for me one of the things um uh, it complements what we do so well because going back to what we were talking about earlier you've got to have the human element of this as well as well as the changing and finding the feeling and getting people motivated it fits very nicely alongside that what's our team charter how are we going to work together what are the behaviors that we have as a team are we going to have robust debate are we going to make sure that we listen to everybody and having having that as a leadership team to then say right okay what change are we driving and then working through this process it's a very pragmatic approach and um i hope darren actually what would be really lovely is to have you back on in another six months or so and we can talk through actually where we've seen this happening because i am so confident with the the way that it is being embraced the impact it's going to have so i just want to say as we as we close out this how grateful i am to you thank you for introducing us to it because it just feels like a bit of magic in our kit bag oh i love it i'm going to look very hard now for the next book to inspire you with vicky the bar's pretty high but uh... <laughs> funnily enough we are still asking our guests to recommend a book so if you've got one in mind yeah. perhaps perhaps you could uh, let us know and then we can plan in the first episode of <laughs> season five when we bring bring back darren for his 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 third tour of duty i love that i am gonna have to read up hard now so i come with a good one because uh yeah. you guys have got so excited by switch i'm gonna have to bring it in the next one you are yeah yeah <laughs> yeah brilliant brilliant well, I think we should probably uh, bring this to a conclusion as we've used up all our available time. So, Darren, as before, thanks again. That was magnificent. And we will look forward to having you back again in the very, very near future. Hey, maybe we won't even need to wait for, for the beginning of season five <laughs> if we can come up with something. Um, so just remains for me to say thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Uh, we appreciate your support, your comments and your subscriptions would be very much appreciated. Mm -hmm.